Let's pray. Our Father and our God, uh, thank you for that reminder that Jesus Christ is the light of the world and uh, that he intends for us to shine the light of Christ into a dark and dying world. Not because we are able, but because he works through us. Father, I pray that the light of your word now might open up our hearts, shine a light in our minds and in our hearts, that we might not only understand the truth, but we might respond to it and receive it, embrace it. It is the word of God, the maker of heaven and earth. And so I pray, Father, today as we gather before you, that you would be pleased to shine down on us, day star, that we might know you and love you and worship you and respond to you by applying what you tell us. For I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How you live and make your choices in the present is completely shaped by what you believe about the future. For instance, this morning I walked out of the house and I put on a raincoat because the weatherman said it was going to rain today. Has it rained yet? I don't know. Has it rained out there? I've been, I've been stuck in here for quite some time, so I don't know. If I were to tell you that the stock market was going to crash Tuesday, there'd be a whole lot of activity Out here on Monday, I think, as you divested yourselves. If I said that the uh, interest rates were going to soar up in a week, if you really believed that were true, you'd make sure that you tried to pay off all your loans as fast as you could before that happened. If I said that you were going on a vacation, you really believed that to be true, you would start packing. And if I said... uh, that there was a wedding coming and you really believed it to be true, you'd start saving some money, wouldn't you? We are used to living in light of some future reality, almost exclusively, if you think about it, analyze your own life. We put lots of stock in unreliable markers and measurements and predictions. How do we respond to what God tells us about the future? You know, the angels stood uh, in front of the disciples as they were gazing up into heaven. And they said to them in Acts chapter 1, the angels said to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, 11, Men of Galilee, why do you stand staring up into the sky? This same Jesus who has ascended into the heavens will in like manner come back again. Jesus himself said, trust in God. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not true, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back again and take you to be with me. So that where I am, there you might be also. The words of Jesus. So how do you treat The total reliability of God and what he says. 
the Alpha and the Omega, the one who knows the beginning from the end. I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians as we begin our study in this particular book on the whole idea of, of big hope. Here's what God says about your future. I, I want to share three things from the first chapter of this, of this scripture that God uh, tells us about our future. And then I want to talk to you about three things you ought to do in light of that future. How you live and make your choices in the present is completely shaped by what you believe about the future. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The theme, really, of the letter to the Thessalonians is hope. Every chapter is filled with hope, the hope of Christ's return. For we know, brothers, loved by God, and that that he has chosen us, chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering, You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. I want to focus on the last couple of sentences this morning. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. As I said to you, this particular text, and in particular, the last couple of sentences in this chapter, tell us what God is saying to us about your future. And I want to share three things this morning with respect to that. And the first is this, at the very end, the very last thing that was said is that there is coming wrath, a coming wrath. There is wrath coming. Do you find yourself almost on a daily basis as you look at the news or read the newspaper and you look at another family that's broken and, and distressed as they hold a, the broken body of their, their little girl or their little boy that they've gathered from some dumpster that some evil person has slaughtered and thrown there, does it, does it cry out to you? Do you cry out for justice? Say, why doesn't somebody do something about all this wickedness and all this evil in our world? I do. I find myself constantly in pain thinking about the, the, the devastation and the hurt and the pain that goes on in people's lives. What, what, what this is telling us in the scriptures is that there is coming a day when God will say, enough. It's enough. Someday God will take a final and a decisive strike, a conclusive judgment against all wickedness. To the killing and molesting of children, to the stealing and the dishonesty, the abuse of men and women, the cruel torture of one nation against another, where the the leader of Iran can say he wants a whole people group destroyed. God will one day say enough of that. The terrorism and slaughter of the innocent. Uh, 
the exploitation of the poor and the disadvantaged, the immoral and disgusting degrading of human sexuality, the injustice and mistreatment and persecution of people. Doesn't it cause you to cry out and say, when will it be enough? Well, what this particular text tells us and tells me is that there is coming a day There's coming a day of epic proportions where God will call out and say, this has been enough. By the way, the scriptures tell us that God is already revealing from heaven his wrath against wickedness and evil. He is already giving us a hint of what he thinks about it and what is his response to evil and wickedness. It says in Romans, Romans chapter 1 verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And how is he doing that? How is he revealing his wrath to us even now? It says that um, God is, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. The Apostle Paul, who, the same Apostle Paul who wrote the letter to the Thessalonians, wrote to the people of Rome and said to them, don't you see? Look around you. You see, that, you see what God thinks of all the wickedness and evil around him. What is he doing? He's actually withdrawing his influence and effect on people. You see, it says in the word of God that all people are created in the image of God. But as God withdraws his effects and his influence upon people and withdraws and backs away from them and gives full opportunity for the full expression of wickedness and evil. It is an example of how God is is revealing already his wrath. If I understand it correctly, he is giving people over to their sexual disorders, their personality and relational disorders. He is giving them over to wrecked lives where they become farther and farther away from the possibility of glorifying God. They lose the capacity to reflect the image of God. Increasingly, they lose the capacity to express the morals and characters of God as God pulls his influence away. He continues to allow them to fall way short of the glory of God. To become deformed in the morality in their relationships rather than being conformed to the image of Christ. Transformed by the Spirit of God. So if I understand correctly what the wrath of God is really going to look like as he gives us the hints of the wrath of God now as he reveals it. It is a withdrawal, God purposely withdrawing his influence for good. And giving people full-blown expression to their wickedness. Now there are people who really don't like to hear that. They don't like to hear about the wrath of God. They don't want to hear about the love of God. Well, think about it this way. All of the horrible things I mentioned a few minutes ago. 
Can you imagine a God who was totally ambivalent about those things? A God who just didn't care? What kind of a God would that be? Would that be a loving God? A God who just didn't care that that families are wrecked and devastated by the wickedness of people? That nation rises up against nation, persecuting people? That, That people are exploiting one another and destroying people? Dishonest and stealing from one another? Would we want a God who didn't, just didn't care about all of that? And here's the good news about all of this. This same God who will say someday enough. It says here in, this, in the text that he raised Jesus Christ from the dead who is now in heaven. Jesus is alive and in heaven and coming to us. Now, now what does that say to us? That because God so loved the world, he wants people to escape the judgment he has to impose upon the world. And so he therefore offered a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was himself. In the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The wages of sin, it says in the Bible, is death. But the gift of God is his willingness To sacrifice himself as a payment of the penalty for the horrible way people live. And the rebellion toward God. Jesus died. But it says in the text here, he is alive and in heaven. A living Jesus, presently in heaven, guarantees to us that the Father was satisfied with his sacrifice... And satisfied with the work that Jesus Christ did in paying for the sins that you have committed against God. And to rescue you. That the Father was satisfied with the work of Jesus for the sins of those who turn to him. But the wrath of God is how those who don't turn to him must pay for the sins that they commit. The The disciple Peter preached virtually the same message in Acts in chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, he said. Then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he has promised long ago through his holy prophets. This Jesus, who is alive in heaven, is coming to us. He goes to prepare a place for us, and he will come again to receive us unto himself. Now, here's the third reality that I get out of this. There is a coming wrath whereby God will say someday, enough, enough of all this wickedness, enough of all of the people that have suffered and and, and been persecuted and, and harmed by one another, enough of all of that. And Jesus is in heaven, raised to, to life. There he is. And he will come again. And here's what the scripture says to us. That somehow there is a connection between Jesus and escaping wrath. The son who comes from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Jesus himself said that whoever believes in the son has eternal life. 
But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Jesus' words. The wrath of God, you see, goes in one of two directions for you. It either remains on you, or Christ has taken it for you. You see, because God is a God of justice, it is required of God to punish the wickedness and wicked crimes against God and man. But because God is also a God of mercy, He Himself has taken the punishment for your sin. To all of those who take Him up on His offer. Now what offer is that? What's the offer? Jesus Christ said this, John 1.12, To as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become the children of God. It's called conversion. The connection here to Jesus Christ comes from conversion to Jesus Christ. That's what the scripture text says to us here. I want to show you how it says that in three ways. Here's how you should live and the choices that you you should make in light of the future that is stated here. That there is coming wrath of God. How should I live then in light of that future? Well, in verse 8 of this particular text, the people of Thessalonica decided they ought to put their faith in God. They ought to trust in God. Now, you may be saying out there this morning, well, I live by the Ten Commandments. Isn't that good enough? Well, what commandments do you live by? Well, I, I, live, I, I don't kill. I don't steal. I don't commit adultery. I don't bear false testimony against my neighbor. I, I don't covet what my neighbor has. I, I, I remember the, the, the holy day to come and, and worship God. I, I honor my parents. Well, that's eight. But there's ten. There's a first commandment. You know what the first commandment is? Thou shalt have no other gods before me, God says. That's why when Jesus was questioned about the greatest commandment, he could say, he could look at the face of his audience and say, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your soul. And that's why Paul says in writing to the Thessalonians, he says, I I understand what they did. When they understood that there was a coming wrath, understood that, that Jesus had been raised from the dead and was in heaven, they turned to God. It says, from their idols. The first thing that you ought to do is turn to something living and true from things that are useless and dead. They turned away from all of the things that they had put in place of God in their lives. That's what idols really are. Replacements for God. It's tough to talk to a North American audience about idols, really. Because we generally don't have them. You're saying, you mean uh, you're talking about uh, things with elephant heads on them and like ten arms and that kind of thing? Is that what you're talking to me about? I'm talking to you about what that represents. We have our idols. They maybe don't look like things with elephant heads and ten arms. But we have our idols. We have our replacements for God, don't we? Our idols are what we choose first in the crunch. Our our, our idols are, are, are how we occupy our time, what we spend most of our time around. Our idols are, are, are what we rely on most for worry-free living, if that's possible with idols. 
Our idols are replacements for God, whether it be a job or, or our investments or our mood-altering meds or, or even religion or maybe even church or, or magical or mystical practices, whatever it is. It, whatever is replacing God in our lives, that's breaking the first commandment, you know. For the people of Thessalonica, the only way to make their future secure from their perspective was to turn to God. To make a decisive choice once and for all to turn to God from anything else that they ever relied on. Now you're saying out there, do you mean that I have to reform my ways? Is that what you're talking about? Do you notice what they did first? They turned to God first. And then he reformed their ways. You turn, you make a turn to God. That's what repentance really means. It's a change of your mind. You look at the things that you've been relying on and say, this stuff is getting me nowhere. I'm changing my mind about this stuff. I'm turning to God. He'll take care of all that stuff. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. You know what happens when you do that? You start loving your neighbor as yourself. You might say, well, I'm a very spiritual person. Well, what exactly or who exactly is the object of your spiritual worship, your attention? This St. Paul, shortly after visiting the Thessalonians... In the same region of the world, the the Greek part of the world, went to Athens. And he noticed that the people there were very spiritual. They were very, very religious people. He wandered around their marketplace and he noticed all the things they worshipped. All the objects they were relying upon. All the things they were investing in. He said to them, I see that you are very religious people. Very spiritual people. Verse 22 of Acts 17. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And I ask you at the front end, did your job make you? Did your investments create you? Did the mood-altering meds? Manufacture you? Did the religion that you are following manufacture you? No, God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent, to change, to turn from their things to God. 
For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus Christ. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. That's why Paul said to the Thessalonians, you turned to God from idols to serve a living God. You used to be serving dead things and useless things and things that couldn't help you. And you turned to a living God who is alive, the God who made you, the one who is resident in heaven. Not only is he a living God, it says he's the true God. He's the real God. How's your job going to help you when the doctor phones with a really, really bad report? The investment's going to be there for you when your child is in really big trouble. Mood-altering drugs, are they going to take care of things for you or just get you over a few minutes? They turn to the living God, the true God, as opposed to the counterfeit and the pretend and the powerless. And what was the evidence that they'd actually turned to God? It says here in the text, to serve him. Instead of living enslaved to the things that they formerly couldn't help them. They totally dedicated themselves to God who could rescue them. They, they put away their former dependencies and preoccupations and turned wholeheartedly to God, threw themselves all into him for mercy. We're talking about a complete change of priorities and affections and hopes and dreams. In faith, they turned to Jesus Christ forsaking their former affections, and then giving all of themselves uh, to the causes and the concerns and the instructions and the plans and the commands and the purposes of Christ. That's what it means to serve him. That's what it means to turn from the former things and turn to Jesus Christ and be all in. Christ's cause is my cause. Christ's concern is my concern. Christ's plan is my plan. Christ's purpose is my purpose. That's the resume of those who will be rescued from the coming wrath. People who honor the will and the wishes of Jesus Christ. Because we're called to do all to the glory of God. Whether we eat or whether we drink or whatsoever we do. We do all to the glory of God that he might be honored by our lives. That's the opposite of the wrath of God, by the way. That's the, the opposite of the revelation of the wrath of God is the, is the individual who is being transformed and conformed into the image of Christ that his life might glorify and honor Jesus Christ. That's the complete opposite to the revelation of the wrath of God. Paul's calling you to that. Christ is calling you to that. The scriptures are calling you to that. God's not asking to throw your life away. God is asking you to find your life, to discover the wholeness of life, to discover the best that you can be. 
the third um, characteristic of someone who's actually turned to God is it says here they will wait for the sun from heaven. You can choose to go from fretting and fearing the future to I can hardly wait. You know, as you look around yourselves, don't you find that people are distressed about the way things are around them? Don't you find that people are fretting and fussing over the future? Don't you find that people are afraid to die? They're afraid of death. There's something better offered to us. Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, now in heaven, coming back to us to rescue us from the coming wrath. That's the promise that's offered to us. The sign and evidence that this is characteristic of your life is you're waiting for Jesus to come and get you with complete confidence and convictions. Malcolm Muggeridge, almost a half a well, a half a century ago, resigned from being rector of Edinburgh University. His reason for resigning was he could not any longer stand the moral malaise that he saw around himself in the university campus of Edinburgh University. He wrote this. The permissive morality of our time will, I am sure, reach its apogee. I don't even know what that word means, but it must mean some (laughs) pinnacle, some apex. I, I need to look that thing up. Malcolm's a really smart guy. When birth pills are handed out with the free orange juice, he was prophesying now, and consenting adults wear special ties and blazers, not even blushing at immorality. And abortion and divorce are freely available on the public health system. Then at last, with the suicide rate up to Scandinavian proportions and the psychiatric wards bursting at the seams, it will be realized that this path is a disastrous cul-de-sac. Whatever life is or is not about, it is not to be expressed in terms of drugged stupefaction or casual sexual relations. And he walked away from his position. The university campus had not even reached that yet. And the education system of Ontario was proposing that we introduce it to grade threes. I think we're very close to God saying, enough. It's enough. And by the way, you should applaud your premier for pushing that back. Although I would be quick to say, once something has bumped up against the wall, those forces that pushed it there will find a way to go either through the wall or over the wall. And you know what the blessed hope for us is? Jesus is coming again to rescue us from the coming wrath of God and to take us to be with him forever. To those who turn to Christ, 
from their idols to serve him with new affections for God and to wait for him to come and rescue us. You see, here's what the word says. To rescue us from. That means out of. The word in Greek is ek. It does not mean to be protected in. It does not mean to be saved through. It means to rescue us out of. Because there is great and grave peril to rejecting the life-giving God. That's why the word of God says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish. Why? Because not believing in him leads to perish. There's great peril. But would not perish, but have everlasting life. When people ask me what's my future, I tell them to live with Jesus Christ forever. That's my future. Is that your future? And why am I so confident about that being my future? Because I believe that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins and that he died and was buried according to the scriptures and that he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures, and that he ascended to heaven according to those same scriptures, and that he is coming again to receive all of those who believe in him and have trusted their life to him. That's why I'm confident about the future. And it shapes the way I live today. Is he shaping your life? As you wait for the coming of the Lord I want to encourage you this morning to recognize that there is wrath coming. That's what the Bible says. That Jesus is alive and in heaven and is coming to us. That there is an important and significant and life-saving connection between Jesus and escaping the wrath of God. And that life-transforming connection is to turn to Jesus Christ from your idols, the other things that you've been relying on, to serve him wholeheartedly and to wait for him, to believe that he is coming, to receive you, to be with him. That's what it means to escape the coming wrath of God. Our Father, you have proclaimed to us your message through your word. You've spoken clearly and loudly to our hearts. You are a loving God who loved us so much that you sent the Son of God to the cross that he would die, that our penalty might be taken upon him so that we might no longer be eligible for the wrath of God, but we might be in line for the rescue of Jesus Christ. Our Father, I pray this morning that the message and the powerful message of salvation, the good news of Jesus Christ, might be embraced by every heart, every soul that's here. To your glory and for your honor, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. That's what the scriptures are urging us to do, really. To turn to God, to serve the living and true Christ, the living and true God, and to wait for his Son come from heaven and it's as simple as calling on the name of the Lord saying I want to turn my back on the things that I've been relying on and I want to offer my life to Christ 
Lord, if you want to take my life, here it is. It's all yours. I've made a mess of it. But I know you can put it all back together and make it whole. Make it honor you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what the Bible says. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you so much for the teaching from your word that tells us about the future and then gives us this amazing good news plan of of salvation, rescue, deliverance. Lord, I pray this morning that you would that you would work in all of our hearts. First of all, for those, Lord, who don't know you as Lord and Savior, never turned their life over to you, Father, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where the Holy Spirit is calling them to himself. Father, for those of us who know you and love you, it's a reminder of the great hope we have of our salvation, that Christ is coming to rescue us from the day when wickedness and evil will finally be dealt with. We escape that because you have saved us from it. We are righteous in Christ now. Thank you for that, Lord. Before I finish praying, I wonder if there's anybody in here this morning who would say, you know what, Rick, I, uh, I've never turned to God. I've never offered my life to Him. I, I've, been, I've been relying on other things. But today, the Spirit of God is speaking to me and inviting me to turn my life over to Him. If that's you and you want to you si- signal that you want Christ to come into your heart, why don't you slip up your hand? I'm not going to embarrass you, but I want to pray for you. Is there anybody in this room this morning who would say, you know, I need to turn my life over to Jesus Christ. I want to be part of that rescue from the coming wrath. Is there anybody? Just slip up your hand and I'll pray. God's working on your heart right now. You know he's working on your heart because it's beating and pounding. Thank you, yes. Thank you. Anybody else? Anybody in here this morning? Thank you. Someone else? One more? God working on your heart. Our Father and our God, you see into hearts. It doesn't really matter what we do with our hands. It's what you see in our hearts. So thank you for the offer of salvation, the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving us enough to send your son to die for us. That we might escape the wickedness and evil of this world. And be with you forever. I thank you in Jesus' name. And Father, for those who responded, I pray, Lord, that you'll lock into their hearts this precious and new relationship with Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.